Welcome back to The Future Fix. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? Good. Uh, thanks for doing this, by the way. Uh, Sean Marshall, to, to begin with, just for listeners, can you tell folks what you do? I'm a geographer by training. Mm-hmm. I write for spacing, for TVO, on my own blog, Marshall's Musings, and occasionally elsewhere on transit issues, urban development, urban history, that sort of thing. Sean is also the co-founder of the pedestrian advocacy group, Walk Toronto. In the height of the pandemic in April, many people noticed the city sidewalks were often too narrow to keep a safe distance from one another, especially in spots where crowds lined up for groceries. But Toronto's medical officer of health, Eileen Davila, wasn't convinced additional curb space was needed, but invited a list of problem areas. And Walk Toronto decided to take this on. Every time like this, we just use Google Maps because that's really easy for people to visualize, you get the satellite view, you can hook up a street view and have a look. And we collected dozens of locations around the city where lineups were uh, taking up sidewalk space and giving very little space for anybody to get around. So you can mass this quite large database and we submit it in an in a open letter with this information, and I feel that that's helped to change the focus, starting with what the city is the term curb TO, and then moving on to active TO. And, and it was good to be part of an awareness campaign that, no, yes, this, this pandemic, we're not, we can't just be told to stay at home. Many of us work, many of us have the groceries, many of us have to get outside just for exercise. And we need these kinds of things. We need strategic involvement from the city to do something about this. You're listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. This is Season 2 of The Future Fix, an audio exploration of the way technology and data are shaping communities across Canada. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Each episode, we present community challenges and solutions and take you to places large and small from coast to coast to coast. Surrey, British Columbia, part of Metro Vancouver, is one of the fastest-growing Canadian cities. Unfortunately, alongside that growth, there's been a rise in road injuries and death. Surrey's road safety manager, Shabnam Avzal, explains. That's right. So we've seen approximately 26% in the last 10 years rise in injury collisions. Mm-hmm. That's really concerning. So that breaks down to about 3% um, every year. And we've got the largest number of traffic fatality deaths in, in the whole of British Columbia. So that's why we kind of looked at the numbers and realized that we needed to do something. 
Right. And, and uh, even just in, in collecting those numbers, uh, it seems like the first step you took in addressing this is going on a big fact-finding mission and finding different ways to uh, collect data that could be persuasive in, in terms of launching some kind of road safety campaign. That's exactly right. So whenever you want to make change, you need to think of how you can convince and coordinate that change. What's the kind of dialogue that you need to have? Why would you change anything unless you paint a convincing picture? So we did um, look at a number of different data sets. Um, In British Columbia, we have one insurance agency that provides basic insurance, and that's the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia. They also collect all the data on injury and non-injury collisions. Um, So we, we gathered that data. We also have, of course, the police data, and we gathered that for Surrey specifically. And those two data sets were our key kind of pieces that we used. We mapped out those collisions over a map of GIS map of our city to see what's happening and to really kind of get to paint a picture of what exactly does this 3% rise every year look like and what are we dealing with, what are the issues, and that's how we came to the conclusion where we identified a number of priority areas for us to tackle. And were there any uh, commonalities that you found in these priority areas in terms of uh, socioeconomic status or uh, where in terms of the geography of Surrey uh, they were located? That's that's a really good question. We did identify a number of patterns. For example, we realized that 80% of our injury collisions happened at intersection locations. And if really, if you think about that, it's not surprising because at an intersection, that is where you will have the highest number of possible conflicts between different types of road users. I'm talking about cars, I'm talking about pedestrians and cyclists. Mm-hmm. And, and those where they merge and there's movements, turning movements taking place at the same time. And there's lots of discretion and decision making required by all road users. So we found that there were hot spots in certain areas of our city, but 80% of them were at uh, intersections. We also found that 65% of the injury collisions happened on only 5% of our roads. So that really gave us a good idea of where we need to focus those changes geographically. You talked about equity. We we touched on that too. Mm -hmm. Um, So we found that vulnerable road users, and that's, you know, road users such as pedestrians, cyclists and motorcyclists, there's a higher burden of injury amongst those groups. So they only make up like 5% of our commuting trips in Surrey, but they also represented 50% of those traffic fatalities. We also found there was um, inequity in the, in the burden of injury amongst different sectors of the population. So I talked about different types of road users, but we also, when we looked at our Fraser health data, which is the region's health data, we found that people of indigenous origin were much more likely to be killed in a, in a collision. And so, again, this is another area for us to focus on. And um, People who are young are um, also more likely to be injured in a collision. So really getting to the root causes of some of those very complex social things that are happening um, to, to be able to target our interventions and our policies and programs to those people. So we identified locations of harm, 
we identified victims of harm, but we also identified perpetrators of harm. So how how do these collisions happen? What kinds of road user behaviours? And not surprisingly, as in all other places in Canada, we found distraction was one of the main causes of collisions amongst um, drivers being distracted, also impairment and speeding were other factors. So those are some of the areas that we, we're working on with our partners in Vision Zero to tackle those kinds of road user behaviours. And, and so armed with all this good data, you were able to propose and 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 get past a, a Vision Zero strategy for Surrey. And uh, Vision Zero uh, programs look different in every municipality because every municipality you know, there's there's a million different ways to try and tackle a problem, but uh, I believe yours has has a kind of four pronged approach, and I wonder if you could uh, walk us through that. We use this thing called the safe systems approach, um, and it's the four pronged approach, as you mentioned, um, of safe roads, and that really relates to much more about engineering and design and separating road users and time and space that reduces conflicts. Almost making it uh, foolproof in a way. Accident proof. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's what Vision Zero is, right? So rather than seeing accidents, so-called accidents, as something inevitable, we rather look at them as collisions. We, we talk about collisions rather than accidents right. because that's when you realize actually they're not accidents. They're, they're largely preventable. But to make them preventable, we there's a number of things we can do. We can design our roadways so that they're accepting of human errors, so that when people make a mistake, they don't end up dead or or really, really catastrophically injured. And that's one of the tenets of Vision Zero. Mm -hmm. So that's the engineering piece on the safe roads. Um, and then there's the safe speeds piece. Uh, we know that the higher the speeds of travel, the higher the level of harm to everyone, including the drivers, including pedestrians and cyclists as well. So we have to set safe speed limits, but also design roads in a way that they prompt drivers towards driving slower and, you know, abiding by the uh, speed limits. Mm -hmm. I touched on the safe road users earlier. And so that, again, is about protecting those road users who are more likely to be injured. And some of that, you know, you can do through education and engagement as well. Um, you don't want to rely overly on trying to change human behavior because that's one of the most difficult things to change and takes a lot of time. So while we, we use this kind of more holistic approach and the, the fourth pillar is safe vehicles. And as you know, there's all sorts of progress taking place with autonomous vehicles, but also automated safety and braking systems and other great helpful things within vehicles themselves um, and then the design of vehicles we know that you know the larger the vehicle the heavier the vehicle the larger impact it's going to have on a human body in a collision so those are the four prongs and really central to that is the human tolerance to physical force there's only so much force a human body can take mm -hmm. right so the science tells us that we, we see the results of that every day that's our approach in in vision zero in surrey and it's it's having some good success so far yeah in, in what stage of uh, of development is it currently so we launched our vision zero plan uh, last february mm -hmm. and we did that alongside all our partners so it's um ourselves of course um, at the city and all our internal departments, but also our police departments, because, of course, they help with not only the enforcement side, but also the engagement side and helping keep our community safe. And then we have our Insurance Corporation of British Columbia. We have our 
sorry, school district. Uh, we have our Fraser Health Partners. So those partners are really critical and we work together. We come together approximately every month and work together. So we launched in February. We've, we're in, we've just passed our year one mark. So we're just looking to get our most recent update for 2019 data. But what we have seen from our police data is that we've had a real good reduction in fatalities on our roads. So the year before we had 21 and last year we had 16. So some of this, I I hope, can be attributed to our efforts on making our roads safer. But it's early days and we know that to get to zero people killed and seriously injured, it's going to take time. Going back to the equity piece and, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, partnering with the police to sort of implement this Vision Zero plan. I think some communities find that enforcement piece difficult to accept uh, when it's been shown in in most municipalities that people of color, especially black people or indigenous people, tend to be targeted more by police services. So is there any discussion in you know reaching out to stakeholders and getting buy-in for the Vision Zero plan to address those kind of fears? Um, we are going to reach out. And actually, we had plans to, for a large engagement to take place later this year, of course. Mm-hmm. But I, I absolutely agree with you. We have to ensure equity in everything that we do. And given the fear amongst communities around this inequity of enforcement and maybe a greater enforcement, what we're doing is we're using the data. So mm-hmm. we're using data to target not only our engineering efforts, but also our enforcement efforts. So where we are gathering data, we're looking at the how a collision is taking place. What are the factors that are leading to this? Um, is it left turning? Is it a left turning opposing? Are pedestrians involved? Where are the locations? And so when we work with our policing and enforcement partners, we ask them to target their resources in those geographical areas and towards those behaviours that actually lead to collisions. So by by using that data and working closely in a collaborative way, I think, you know, we can go some way towards taking away the perception or the reality of inequitable enforcement. The other thing I think um, that we can do, and and that also has its issues, but things like automated enforcement. Mm-hmm. There's many, many technologies out there now, like the automated speed enforcement cameras. We just need to make sure that we locate them in the right areas where we actually have the problems. There's issues, and now I know there are some concerns around the inequity that can come arise out of the actual fines from such cameras. Then they may have a bigger impact on lower income for example. So those are all things to keep in mind and also try to design out. So we're, we're trying to design equity in, into all, all that we do. One other thing I will touch on, actually, mm-hmm. is that we do, we've noted that we have a greater number of injury collisions occurring in, in the lower socioeconomic census tract areas of our city. And um, and conversely, we've, we found that we have more complaints and requests for service received from our higher income census tract areas of our city. So those things relating to things like um, requests for crosswalks or uh, flashing beacons for pedestrians, speed humps and traffic calming. So really what we're doing is now we're using our data to level out the playing field. Mm-hmm. So no longer are we going to just you know, wait for complaints or requests, we're actually going to see where the largest number of collisions may 
occur in the future. So we can actually have predictive models of where these things will happen and then base our investments, not just on, you know, request the service, but also exactly where the target areas need to be. And uh, like you say, this is early days for the program, but uh, what's what's the next big benchmark that you're looking forward to? We've been targeting our locations of harm, as I said, our intersections. So we're really trying to target about 50 intersections over the next, next five years. So if we've said that 80% of our injury collisions happen at intersection locations, by doing that, by focusing our infrastructure and our huge capital investments towards those locations and prioritizing the way in which we select our projects and prioritize them um, using our Vision Zero road safety lens, we can really make a quick impact, a fast impact. Some of the other things that we're doing under this you know, resource restrained era of um, the pandemic, and it's been impacting everyone, including support governments, is we're looking at also low-cost solutions, um, solutions that provide greater protection to our vulnerable road users, such as, you know, leading pedestrian intervals, giving pedestrians a head start into crosswalks, making them more visible to drivers, giving them that kind of protection. So really, I'm, I'm looking forward to the equity piece, as you mentioned, is so dear to my heart. I think it's really important that we really, really embed that, not only within our downstream kind of reactive enforcement or or building or, or road design, but also upstream, um, into embedding it into all the sectors of the city, like I said, um, from planning to the way we create our cities and plan our cities so that we really look at it in an equitable way. Um, equity in terms of uh, sustainability, equity in terms of all sectors of society and income levels as well. So those are the things I'm really looking forward to this coming year. Beyond the need for road safety in general, the COVID-19 pandemic put a fine point on the need for safe space in cities. When two meters of social distance is encouraged and sometimes enforced, we become highly aware of narrow sidewalks. And when safe alternatives to crowded transit are needed, the value of things like safe bike lanes becomes crystal clear. Halifax City Councilor Way Mason tells us what this mid-sized maritime city is doing to address these needs. Halifax uh, was founded in 1749, and a lot of the core of the city was kind of 1800s in the mid 1800s. So, and it's the same a little bit in downtown Dartmouth, which was an independent city that's part of the amalgamated area. And and those streets are narrow. That they were designed for horse and buggy and people walking. We had a streetcar system until the 1940s, and and so the sidewalks are are generally you know the standard is 2.1 meters, but in in my area the sidewalks in some cases are only a meter meter and a half wide, including all the street furniture or poles or whatever. So it's hard to social distance when the sidewalk isn't wide enough to maintain two meters. And and so what we've done is. Uh, we've created a network of slow streets is what we've called them. And they, we've got the pylons, the local traffic 
only and make it so that those streets were slowed and you knew that you'd be able to jog or walk or bike or scoot out in the street and not have to worry about dodging vehicles. And so that that network has been put in place in the regional center uh, of the city, uh, the old, the, you know, the kind of most built up urban area. And it's been kind of awesome because the analysis turned up no surprise that most of them are on places we've been talking about building bike lanes anyway the last three years Mm -hmm. so so that got dropped into place over a couple of weeks there was a first phase and a second phase and and we now have uh, a pretty substantial network of slow streets in addition to the bike lanes and park paths that means people can get around and know they're going to be able to maintain their distance right and and part of the way that you identified these areas is you, you actually put it out to the people of halifax with the sort of a, a mobility response website. Well, and that's that's been really cool. So, so we we use this thing called Shape Your City, uh, and so we asked people to come and drop a pin on the map and said, you know, where else do you think we should do this? And some of those did get added. But what's been really interesting as a as a counselor and a mobility advocate who wants to deprioritize the cars uh, on our roads is that. Everybody has logged in and dropped a pin on their street. So, you know, the intention of the Slow Streets program is to create a network and to uh, connect communities. But what we're clearly seeing is a lot of residents are are trying to get it on their street strictly for traffic calming, which is something that Halifax is a smaller city. We haven't done a lot of that yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's relatively new to us. And people really want to see vehicles moving more slowly on their streets. So has there been enough time for city staff to look at this data and and use that to uh, decide where to implement some of these uh, interventions? So there have been some changes and some new implementations based on what we've heard from residents and and staff have been analyzing that on the go. One of the challenges for a small city, of course, is that, you know, we have under a half dozen staff who are doing AT and tactical uh, interventions combined. And and so our, our strategic planning group isn't very large. And, and, and so one of the things that's happened is they've quite deliberately taken a pause and we'll see what the next iteration of slow street and interventions might look like in a couple of weeks because those same staff had to go back to their regular work and make sure that the bike lanes and tactical work that had already been planned for this year that wasn't COVID specific is still going to happen. You know, we don't want to lose momentum on those things at the same time. So I would say that's actually our biggest challenge right now. Have you been able to kind of ensure a sort of uh, equitable response uh, using this call for citizens? Uh, I would like to say yes, because that's what I want to believe happened. But but I, I'm going to be honest that, you know, during a pandemic response, it's been extremely hard to ensure that. I know staff are very conscious of that. And I know some of our best young, motivated uh, staff are working on all these projects all the time. But in fact, the initial rollout of the slow streets before we asked residents where they should be was done with no consultation. It was done based on the uh, staff's expert knowledge and, and and the previous bike lane consultation and integrated mobility plan consultation. And, and you know, going back, you know, we, we've got consultation with thousands and tens of thousands of people for the last 10 years. But if we wanted to make decisions to change streets quickly to respond as the economy started to reopen and people were trying to get around, staff just had to go for it. And it was interesting to see the feedback on social media. One of the critiques was, is this fair to all areas? You know, one of the initial concerns was, is it is are the wealthy people going to get all this and is it just not going to happen in low-income neighborhoods? And And what's interesting is the staff lens was, to not do traffic calming, not use it for traffic calming on streets that 
had uh, low vehicle numbers on a normal day. Mm-hmm. So, so in fact, most of the slow streets happened kind of in the center and the north end of Halifax and in the uh, kind of center and north of Dartmouth, which is more predominantly middle and lower income neighborhoods. And, but but that, that happened prior to when we had public input. W- what will be interesting to see is where the dots on the maps were placed and, and what the clusters are. And I'm not going to exaggerate. I expect it will be predominantly in, in more connected neighborhoods that are used to hearing, uh, feeling that their voices are going to be heard. Uh, it will be interesting to see how well during this kind of crisis implementation we reached into those other neighborhoods. Uh, I suspect it won't be what I want to see, but, but I hope that we did get some response because I know we tried really hard to get it. I think mobility advocates in, in a lot of cities where there are these kind of COVID responses are, are hoping that everyday people have a sort of takeaway that it, it could be like this all the time. You could have that level yes. of mobility and safety. <laughs> yeah, is, is that kind of what you hope to see for Halifax? Well, yeah. I mean, among other things, as a, as a relatively small city, like the core is very compact geographically because of history and because the the downtown of Halifax is on a peninsula, and and so what that means in non planning terms is, you know, when you get into the North End, there's only one road that runs from the harbor and CFB Halifax east west all the way to you know Westmount and and would connect to the trail system that takes you off the peninsula. One road, so it, it becomes an interesting dialogue like we can't really go to the public and say do you want to do this or do you want to explore an alternative there is no alternative if we want to have an, if we're going to follow the copenhagenizing kind of rules and have the shortest way to connect a to b for bikers and for covid for for any kind of mobility challenges there aren't a lot of options and and so this has given us a chance to demonstrate uh, many of those options and and yeah we're I, like i'm hoping that the neighbors dig in and defend it and say, we don't want it to go away. That would make it a lot easier than, than uh, the usual bike lane bun fight that all cities in North America experience when they're going to implement something. <laughs> and what's interesting is on the regional center, we have $25 million in funding from the uh, federal provincial bilateral for, for doing bike lanes in the regional center, for creating what we call the minimum grid so that we have that established north, south, east, west in the regional center. So the money is there and the municipality only has to pay 17 cents on the dollar to build. If the public wants it, it's eminent. We can do it on all these streets. So, so that, that is definitely the result we're hoping for. The push for safe streets is often politicized. It can be bogged down in rhetoric about the war on the car. And to some, especially those who don't have regular need of safe sidewalks and active transportation routes, the argument is a purely theoretical one. But when faced with a crisis, when you absolutely need safe streets and you need them now, letting the data do the talking is the fix. Thank you for listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. We are a partnership between Spacing Magazine and Evergreen for the Community Solutions Network, a program of Future Cities Canada. As the program lead, Evergreen is working with Open North and partners to help communities of all sizes across Canada navigate the smart cities landscape. 
The Community Solutions Network is supported with funding provided by Infrastructure Canada. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. We'll be back next month to talk about how governments can benefit from open data policies. <laughs>